This is the Startup Pregnant Podcast, episode 23. Is it bad for society if mothers work? For us to be a globally competitive society, and by us I mean American society, although I know we have listeners all around the world, for us to be competitive, we need women to work. We can't cut out half of the population and say, well, you can't work, so let's still try to be competitive. Cutting our economic powerhouse by half doesn't do us any favors. But if we need women to work, that also means that we need mothers to work. We need working mothers. We can't necessarily be competitive if we say that mothers shouldn't work. Now, why then is the following statistic so prevalent? I learned this statistic by reading a book, and the statistic goes like this. 40% of American households, that's nearly half, almost 50%, 40% believe that it is bad for society if mothers work. Not indifferent, but they actively think that it is bad for society if mothers work. This statistic, as we'll get in on today's show, explains so much about what it feels like to be a working mother today. Today's guest, who I'm so excited to have on this show, I've wanted her on the show since I started the podcast, is Sarah Lacey. She is the CEO of Pando, and she is the CEO of Chairman Mom. And she is the author of a book that just recently came out called A Uterus is a Feature, Not a Bug, The Working Woman's Guide to Overthrowing the Patriarchy. In today's episode, we're going to talk about why it makes sense that American society doesn't offer maternity leave or paid parental leave when you start to unpack it. This statistic is at the heart of why. Why being a stay-at-home mom is a very specific American phenomenon. And if you get out of this country and you start to look at what other countries do, you realize just how weird we are. We talk about what maternal bias is and how it works against women in their careers. And I'll admit, the book made me cry. It made me cry on several occasions where I welled up into tears, and I've been speaking with other people who say the same thing. And so on this episode, I actually share where the moments in the book that made me cry. Um, and so we're going to get into that. So here we go. Welcome to the Startup Pregnant Podcast, where we talk to creative leaders about what it means to be an entrepreneur and a parent. I'm your host, Sarah K. Peck. Today's episode is brought to you by HippoGive. HippoGive is a new app that donates your change by rounding up your everyday transactions to the nearest dollar. It gives that money to the charities and the nonprofits of your choosing. If you've been wanting to donate to the ACLU, Planned Parenthood, or to disaster relief efforts, you can use this app, and it's a piece of cake to start donating. All you need to do is create an account, choose your charities, and then set your weekly donation cap. Head over to the iTunes store and download the HippoGive app so you can get started today. As always, hit subscribe wherever you listen to podcasts. And if you have a minute to leave us a review, we would love that. If you need any of the show notes from the show, head to startuppregnant.com. All right, let's get started. All right, everybody, we have Sarah Lacey here today. She is amazing. I just finished reading her new book, and I am beyond excited to be interviewing her. So Sarah, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me. I think this is my first podcast I've done on the book, so I'm really excited. Ah, it is an amazing book. I'm going to try not to gush too much, but I definitely cried three different times. And So when did you cry? Because so far, everyone who's read it has cried. And I'm it, almost always at different parts. Oh, interesting. I think the first thing that made me cry was 
it's a good bad feeling. You know when somebody writes something that you wish you had said? Mm-hmm. Like I got your book and I was like, I wanted to say all of this. Like it was just, <laughs> it was like this like hopeful devastation moment where Brene Brown or Liz Gilbert talks about it, about like when the universe has ideas that need to be spoken and lots of people are working on them. So to be honest, the first one was like, she's saying it all. She's saying it all. <laughs> I got angry. I know I followed your story about what's happened with Uber and I just I just kept getting livid and angry. And the statistic you said about 40% of women or what is it? 40% of Americans believe that women shouldn't be working. Period. Yeah. Yeah. Bad just, for society. Like that was the gutted kind of feeling. I just like, I wait, know. stop. Are you like swear words? What is happening? So that stat, so Paul, my business partner and an actual boyfriend too, as you know from reading the book, when he read the final draft, he's like, you literally have cited that stat 15 times. I'm like, because that one stat explains so much of America. Yes. Yes. And it's, ah, like I'm left speechless sometimes. And the thing that's crazy about that stat, okay, there's a lot of stuff about sexism that's really globally universal because there's so far no other community on earth that's not a patriarchy. But what's crazy to me and very definitely American is that stat. Other countries do not have the point of view that mothers working is bad for society. In fact, in a lot of other countries, there really isn't a phenomenon of stay-at-home moms. Like that is a very specific American maternal bias thing, which was something I didn't realize before writing the book. Mm. Can you go into that and explain that for people who haven't read the book yet or are listening and they're like, wait, I don't understand even what this statistic <laughs> is. Like, what is she saying? <laughs> yes, absolutely. So it was a Pew study and it was said that 40% of American households think it's bad for society if women work. Now, if you think about that, that explains a lot of things. It explains, for one, how a lot of people were just never going to vote for a woman for president. I mean, if you think it's bad for society, if women work, then necessarily do you want one running the country? You're probably going to be moved to not support that person. So it explains some of that stuff. It also explains why there's a wage gap and why people feel okay about the wage gap. I mean, it explains why we are the only industrialized nation and one of the only nations in the world, full stop, that doesn't have any maternity leave because people think it's bad if women work. Why would they give you a benefit to make it easier? It explains why maternal bias is the most overt, the most overt kind of sexism women experience on the job because a lot of employers, male and female, believe that you can't be a good mother unless you are 100% available for your children, and you can't be a good employee unless you're 100% available for your boss. And if you believe it's bad for society and bad for that woman's children if she works, then by denying a woman promotion, by not hiring her, by not allowing her to have advancement, you're doing her a favor. I mean, there literally are people who don't see it as sexism. They see it as you're helping that person out. Now, there's sexism everywhere. But if you go to countries like two that I focus on in the book, Iceland and China, super different countries in terms of how they think about women. I mean, you know, one had a policy of murdering baby girls and the other is the most feminist country on earth. So hard to get much different than those two. And yet... Both of those countries 
don't really have a concept of stay-at-home moms, particularly Iceland. There's also the most single moms there. There's like two-thirds of the babies are born as single moms. And I went and I talked to about, I don't know, 15 or 20 working single moms, and a lot of whom were starting companies and, and doing amazing things. And I would ask them like if they had ever, when they were growing up, when they were raising kids, knew any stay-at-home moms. And like, they couldn't think of any. I mean, there was like one woman who like thought and was like, oh, there was one woman who was disabled. And so she worked part time. And like same with in China, like when people were growing up in part kind of because of communism and because just it's been such an explosive labor market. And in some ways also because of the one child policy, like all the women worked. And it's like when you have cultures where there's no such thing as stay-at-home moms, the way sexism gets brought in, the rights women have or don't have in order to have economic equality are totally different than here. And so it's like I thought because sexism was universal, this bias that mothers are weak and disabled and you know should just kind of be baby machines that a lot of our country believes would also be a global universal thing, and it's not. Like it's a very American thing, which is why we are the only country that doesn't give women maternity rights. Because if you think about it, if your goal is driving women out of the workforce because you think as a society, this is a moral issue and it is bad for society if women work, the best way to do it is not allow women to recuperate or bond with their babies or anything after they have children. And it's to force them to go back to work immediately because that's their most vulnerable time. And 85% of women in this country don't have any rights to any maternal leave at all. Blow, blows my mind in the, the worst way. Where did this belief come from? How did it grow in the country? Like, what purpose does it serve for Americans? Yeah, it's crazy. I mean, so part of this is just our breed of patriarchy. I mean, if you think and look, you see this with the quote unquote economic anxiety that men keep experiencing in this country as women get more and more rights. There's so much data that shows why women working and frankly, men having a better relationship and a more active relationship with their children has a million benefits. I mean, has benefits on children, has benefits for employers. There's been like $5 trillion added to the GDP because of women fighting through and getting some right to work. I mean, for all the economic anxiety we keep talking about, if we gave women more maternity rights, which we know would keep more women in the workforce, our GDP would go up by trillions. So one of the things you said in your book, you write, this is a quote that I'm reading, giving the government rights to what happens in a woman's body reinforces the idea that women are only here to be mothers on demand, and it punishes them if they want a life beyond that. Can you talk a little bit about this? I don't even know like the enormity of the question I'm going to ask you, but like, how do we <laughs> even start to think about the government's role in regulating and moderating and controlling a woman's body? And why do we need to fight so hard against that? Isn't it weird? I mean, the thing that's crazy is it's like if you actually kind of like think through the logic of a lot of the stances around abortion and Planned Parenthood, it's like, okay, the people, for instance, on the extreme who want to punish women if they had abortions, okay, what are they punishing them for? So are they punishing them for having sex? Because if that's the case, then you would allow abortions for women who are raped. Okay, so it's not having sex. So if you're punishing them for destroying life, you would give them access to cheap and easy birth control. So that wasn't an issue. 
And you wouldn't also then punish and stigmatize single mothers in poverty who didn't have abortions. Like none of it is logically consistent. Mm. The only thing that's logically consistent, if you think across the entire argument, including refusing to give women any rights for maternity leave, is that you want to economically control women. Mm. And the only way to economically control women is not allow them to have any rights to their body. Because when the economy opened up for women was when birth control came in and women could put off the decision to have children or limit the number of children they had. And that's why in the 70s, abortion had never been a Protestant cause. It was a Catholic issue, but it was not historically an evangelical issue. It was consciously used by the Nixon administration to start a seeming grassroots movement around abortion and make that the evangelical wedge issue. And the reason that it found such a responsive audience among a lot of people was that was when birth control had opened up economic opportunities for women for the first time. And look, I think a year or so ago, or if Hillary had won, this would sound so much more unhinged extremist, but like we are literally living in a country where we are litigating whether or not Nazis are okay. We are litigating whether or not slavery was a good or bad thing. We are relitigating whether or not it's okay for a 30-year-old man in a position of power to grope a 14-year-old girl. I mean, as increasingly white men become destabilized as the de facto source of all power in this country, all of these sort of moral debates are back on the table. It's all part of the same thing. It feels like the best way that I can conceptualize it is that it feels like you're in this funhouse maze of lies and you keep <laughs> going from one room to the next and you can't quite get above it and you kind of realize the lies don't make sense, but they don't add up. And then at some point, and this is what I think is so just jaw-dropping about your book is that you systematically take all of these lies, like benevolent sexism or the idea that abortion is just a Christian and evangelical issue, and you bring them all out into the open and you say, okay, wait a minute, let me just line up all these lies for you and, and show you that there is no way these add up. Like it's a math equation that doesn't make sense. And when you look at it all together, it's actually a system of power and control. And if you think about it, it's not just the government and it's not just the GOP. And it, this is not as simple as a political thing. I mean, look at what passed for feminism in a pre-Trump era, the 50-50 marriage. Just as bad. It's just dressed up differently. Like you read books on the 50-50 marriage and the argument is literally, here's how you can sell your husband on allowing you to have a career. That is opting into a patriarchy. It just looks better. And it's being pushed by liberals who want women to succeed. And they're very well-meaning. But it is still advising that women opt into a patriarchy. Because you will never have a 50-50 marriage, first off, if you're asking permission for a 50-50 marriage. Second off, it leaves single mothers or lesbian mothers or anyone else who isn't married to a man with children completely out of the equation for how they're supposed to get equality. And the worst thing is just it normalizes this idea in women's minds that they have to ask anyone for anything when it comes to their bodies or their life. So the subtitle of your book is The Working Woman's Guide to Overthrowing the Patriarchy. 
It's a modest goal. The the modest goal. (laughs) But given what you have just explained and the idea that the patriarchy is so systemic and it's embedded and it's a web of power and lies, well, A, for people who maybe still aren't believers yet, like why is it fundamental that we dismantle it? And then what do you think the future holds as we start to dismantle it? So what I thought you were going to ask was, how can we dismantle something that's that pervasive? And I think it's awesome that you didn't ask that question. That seems to be the question I keep getting from men, but not from women, which is interesting. Hmm. I think women are more hopeful about dismantling it. And I mean, my answer for that is we have the numbers. I mean, what's so great about intersectionality is that women, people of color, immigrants, LGBTQ, like we all have the numbers. And it's like, that's why it's so important for everyone to not get divided. Like, that's exactly how it gets dismantled. And by the way, there's a lot of white, straight men who also hate toxic hypermasculinity and also don't understand what being a man is in this culture. And so like, there's a lot of even like white, straight men that are kind of victims of the patriarchy in the same way if they want to be active fathers or, you know, not build a company and yet not work 18 hours a day. But in terms of like, what's the good of, of dismantling it? I mean, it's a surprisingly hard question to answer. I mean, I think the good is if you believe in equality, when you talk to people who feel this lack of agency or economic anxiety in our country right now, or whatever the phrase is, what they're describing is for the first time in their life, not getting preference and how disorienting that is for a lot of men. I mean, I've tried to understand why some really powerful white men in Silicon Valley were so sympathetic to like the James Damore email. People like Paul Graham, who started Y Combinator, which is the biggest and most powerful incubator here. And someone else actually wrote this essay specifically about him, but about this thing, breaking it down. And it's this idea that all these men who've succeeded in a place like Silicon Valley believed that it was a meritocracy. And it was a meritocracy against other white men, you know, and they believed this. And so then they believed they were exceptional. And it's like telling people they actually weren't exceptional. And so I guess the reverse of that is why I think it's so important that we could actually live in a world where feeling exceptional and society deeming you're exceptional wouldn't have to do with your gender or your race. And I just think that has to be a net good for everybody. So what do you think is going to happen as we start to dismantle it? Do you see chaos before the next wave? What is your vision of the future here? Yeah, I mean, I think if we know anything from the last year, it's that things will continually get worse before they get better. I mean, I think what's so interesting right now is that with all the wave of sexual assault and sexual harassment claims that are coming out, that every industry in this country seems as if men are being held accountable for past actions, with the exception of the government. And that feels untenable to me. I mean, there's a very clear reason why. There's 30% of this country that just fundamentally believes racism and sexism is great as long as their needs are still being met. And it's not a religious thing. It's bullshit. It's not any of this other stuff. It is sacrificing the lives and rights of other people if you feel like your needs are getting taken care of. And there's 30% of this country that is just okay with that. But that 30% are not the people who employ Harvey Weinstein or employ Kevin Spacey or, you know, have funded 
binary capital venture firm that was dissolved because of a lot of these allegations. So you got to think like, what does that 30% clearly have agency over in this country? And it's obviously the GOP, because that is literally the only group, the only national group where men continually keep getting away with this. And what's going to make that change? It's a hard thing to imagine. But let's hope that at the midterm elections, that 70% of the country who actually thinks like these things aren't okay. People, not only like liberals like me, but people like my parents who are Southern evangelical Christians who voted for Hillary because they were disgusted by the Hollywood access tape. Like, let's assume more people like that decide this isn't okay. And the 70% who isn't cool with Nazi rallies and sexually assaulting young women, let's assume they all get together. There's going to be 30% of this country in open revolt, even more than what we've seen now. I think it's a long time of ugly. And I think there's going to have to be very real laws that are changed or we'll never get out of it as a nation. I mean, there need to be better gun laws, you know, everything from gun laws to, you know, solidified reproductive rights to better parental leave. I mean, all kinds of things so that you actually remake society, the things that we've been lagging the rest of the world on for a really long time. And if we can't elect the right people to make those policy changes, then I just feel like we're going to stay in this tug of war as a nation. And I think increasingly, like a lot of people are going to leave. I mean, I was in London last week. I flew home on Sunday, landed and opened Twitter and saw there had been another shooting. And it's getting to a point where mothers like me feel like it's getting close to irresponsible to raise your children in the United States because of the gun issue. And like that is terrorism. That's the basis of terrorism. And so as that trajectory continues unchecked, which it has now been for some time, I don't know what that point is, but there comes a point where you just have to leave this country. Hmm. You know, I just wanted to grab my kids and get back on a plane and go to a country that has some logical stance around guns. It's guns. It's rights for women. There's so many things we lag on right now as a country. And you can see it in the policy. This isn't even culture. It's policy. And at some point, you're going to see a brain drain. At some point, people will not continue to raise their children in these environments. Right. And not just the brain drain from the 40%, the belief that women, half of our economic power shouldn't work, but then in addition, the people for whom these policies and these systems, it's just not, it's not a trade-off that's worth it. Yeah. And I mean, the other astounding 40% stat in that same Pew study is that 40% of households in America have female breadwinners. So, I mean, polarization of America right there. You have 40% of this country thinks it's bad for society if women work. And you have 40% of households where food is only put on the table because of women working. So you are so clear about this right now. Like you're able to articulate these points of view and the passion that you bring to your work is so present. But there's this quote in the book. I want to back up and ask you, like, how did you get here? Because when I was 20 years old, was not in my college Democrats or college Republicans, I was on swim team, right? And that was the most <laughs> important thing to me. And you have a quote and stories about how you went from being the cool bro or the cool person in your 20s to, here's the quote that I have in front of me. I went from sexism denier to full-throated fierce feminist in less than a decade's time. Getting pregnant was the beginning. 
how did you get here to be so clear about these points of view? And where were you and your 20-year-old self and why were there differences? God, it's so horrible. I like, it's so cringe inducing for me to like, even think about things I said or did in that sort of cool dude phase of my life. And I just felt like I had to very clearly own up to it in the book. And I think in a lot of ways, the book is like sort of the story of that transition. But, you know, to shortcut it somewhat from 350 pages, there's a lot of women who succeed in Silicon Valley, because they're really good at being men. And I was just one of those women. And part of this was like the pattern I'm sure that I saw around me of how you succeed. But I think a lot of it was also just my personality. I mean, I grew up in the South as a girl, but I never fit into the mold of what like the good Southern girl was supposed to be. You know, I was always an outlier and in some situations sort of an outcast because I was incredibly outspoken. I was not demure. Like I just was not any of the things that was the female ideal in the, in the era and place that I grew up. And so even in times when I was not being rewarded for that behavior, like that's who I was. So, you know, I don't think it was just moving out here and seeing what worked. But I think one reason that I did thrive in Silicon Valley, despite being a woman, and I moved here in my early 20s, is that I fit in well with men and I could socialize well with men. And I wasn't intimidated of being around men. And I, you know, moved out here with the man that I was going to marry. So I didn't have to deal with the awkwardness of, you know, dating in an industry. And so like a lot of those things that become issues, like I kind of was off the table. So that made things easier for me. And, you know, look, I loved baseball. I could talk about sports. I could drink the same as men. I swore a lot. I had a very sort of just like male sense of humor and I could, you know, not be offended and I could, all of these things. There are ways that I just naturally fit with men and I didn't appear to be a threat because I didn't appear like I was trying to like upend anything. And I think the more that got rewarded, I just fell into this benevolent sexism trap that I didn't even understand what I was falling into because I didn't even know what benevolent sexism was. Like, I so wish I had had this book in my 20s. You know, look, I had for sure was a subject of sexual harassment and discrimination. And, you know, I was still a woman. There was still a lot of shit I experienced. But, you know, I kind of chalked it up to like, this is paying your dues. This is life as a woman. This is just something you have to expect being in this industry. And beyond that, I didn't feel like it had really held me back. I was still able to succeed. I had a lot of amazing mentors. I was able to raise funding when I set out to build a company. In fact, I took my newborn fundraising with me and I still had an oversubscribed two and a half million dollar seed round, you know, which was huge for a journalism company. I mean, I, you know, I had a lot of benefits and I had a lot of mentors and supporters. There's a lot of men who pay to read what I have to say about tech. And yet, look, I'm sure a lot of that is also because I'm a white woman. Every knock you have against you takes you out of a patriarchy more. But I think a lot of it also was I was not one of these women in my 20s who was jumping up and down and calling this industry sexist. And when I would talk to women who said they were denied opportunities because they were a woman, I was the kind of woman who would say, well, like, look, I mean, I've just found a way around it. Like, you just need to work harder. You just need to be better. You need to network more, whatever. You know, I didn't grasp the enormity of the problem because I was lucky enough to be a white woman who socialized like a guy 
who was able to build connections. And I thought that that should be everyone's experience as a woman. You know, and it wasn't until I really had kids. Even though I felt that way, I didn't like being a woman. I didn't see benefits to being a woman. I had a lot of shame in being a woman. There were things that like I hated about it. And it really wasn't until becoming pregnant when I was 35 that I felt like I unlocked this like power of being a woman. And for me, it was very like physical in terms of pregnancy. I mean, I had amazing pregnancies and I felt like a superhero. I just was, I was in awe that this whole time, this body that I resented and hated so much and felt so much shame over and everything else was able to like produce life and just knew what to do. It was like, I feel like I fell in love with being a woman for the first time during that pregnancy as much as I fell in love with my child. And that was so powerful. And then when I became a mother, it's like, oh my God, you do feel this thing of like this cliche of like, I could pick up a car and throw it over my head. I mean, you have this like power of emotional, ferocious, protective love and intensity that you can just like put into different things that I just never experienced before. And it was just like my, you know, skin was vibrating. And it's very different than this idea of strength that men have. You know, I was always one of these people growing up that people would always be like, oh, they would always talk about how I had balls. And like, one of my nicknames in college was balls of steel. And like, that's just the supreme compliment that a man can give to a cool girl. You know, when I became a mother, it was like strength was no longer about pent up male sexual aggression. Strength was about loving something so much that you can destroy anything in front of you in order to protect that thing. That's so much more exciting and exhilarating and powerful for me. And it was like this emotional range of what I thought was happiness and what I thought was fear and what I thought was sadness before were all limited in this narrow band and becoming a mother just exploded that. Like, I feel like I was living within 10% of myself before. And I don't say that to mean that everyone has to become mothers or you'll never live your full self. I don't believe that at all. But for me, I was so in this cool dude trap. It was the only way that I fully became into my power as a woman. I mean, you write something about how you went from trying to hide your chest to breastfeeding in a meeting and that experience of 180 of a full just cycle of transformation from this one place to another. It's phenomenal. Yeah. There's so many reasons I wanted to write this book, but the biggest reason I wanted to write it, you know, at a time I really didn't have time to write it or anything else, was I just wanted my children to understand when they were older, like what they did to me and how they transformed me and what they meant to me. And, you know, I had them during this insane time. I mean, my son is six. And over the last six years, I had my job stolen while I was in labor. I for the first time of living in Silicon Valley, had the confidence to start a company and, you know, have raised now, you know, millions of dollars from some of the most famous investors around the world. I built this company. I built this profitable company. I had to oust two board members. We had $400 million in frivolous legal threats to try to silence me and the journalists who work for me. The largest company in Silicon Valley history tried to destroy me by going after my family. You know, I got divorced and became a single mother. It was an insane six-year period. 
people around me, men, kept saying, I don't know how you're doing this with children. And I was like, you don't understand. I am only able to do this because of my children. I wouldn't be doing any of this. I would have quit. I would have given up so much sooner. I mean, the only reason I was able to do it was the strength I got from my children. And like, if no one else read this book, I mean, thank you so much for reading it and having me on your podcast. (laughs) I don't care if anyone else reads this book. Like, I want my children to viscerally, when I am still in like the moment of rawness, understand how just their very existence could have so transformed their mother and given her so much strength and power and everything else. I mean, people thank me for everything Panda's written and the change that we've had in certain corners of bro culture. And it's like, they should be thanking my children, not me. I think this is just such a an important point because then in your book, you talk about the irony is that if I'd known I was going to start a company, I would have never gotten pregnant. And there's this like, relentless fear mongering of women of like, pick your career or your children, pick your career or your children, like tick, 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 time is ticking. When Mm -hmm. what you are saying here is that you just said it, you said, like, I had the confidence to start a company. Mm -hmm. Can you talk about how this transformation actually led you to start this company? And maybe why you didn't have the confidence earlier? Yes. So the first thing was, I think, like, a lot of women, I mean, there's a reason that, you know, lean in is called lean in. And it's because like women start taking themselves out of the workforce. And this is one reason I called the book, a uterus is a feature, not a bug, not a baby is a feature, not a bug. Because a lot of the things that I write about in this book impact you because you have the power to create life. It doesn't only impact mothers. And you know, a lot of women do, they start taking themselves out of roles well before having kids. And I think I did the same thing. If I thought I was going to be having children, this fear, all of these lies that I believed that becoming a mother would make you weak and emotional and distracted. You just couldn't do as much work and you'd have this biological imperative to be with your children. I mean, the way this is described to women, like pretty much from the time they start their periods until they have children is almost like an invasion of the body snatchers kind of thing. I mean, it's sort of horrifying. (laughs) And I was terrified. And it's like, you have all these women who are telling you this is going to happen. You have society telling you, you every movie, you have all this stuff telling you this is going to happen. And then everyone also follows it up with, you just have no idea. You just have no idea. You can't know. You just can't know. You can't know until you have children. Like, you just have no idea. And it's like, okay, well, apparently there's this thing that is going to absolutely devastate and destroy and change every single thing that I consider myself. And there's no way concept where I can imagine what that is before it happens. So like, of course you're terrified to have children. And it's like, I would have thought it was economically rash of me to raise money and hire people if I was planning on having children, because I believe this very, very pervasive lie. You know, I just think I would have never done it if that was even in the cards for me. And so part of it was once I had Eli And, you know, I say in the book, it's like those scenes in movies where you're like diffusing a bomb and like, you don't know which right wire to cut is. And it's like, I'm you were, you know, the countdown is coming. I've one second, I need to just cut a wire and hopefully it's the right one. And like the character kind of braces and like nothing blows up. Like, I feel like that's Mm -hmm. how the end of my pregnancy was. And, you know, Eli came out and like, lo and behold, I was still me. Like there was nothing that had changed. And this was pronounced to me because I had to go to China six weeks after giving birth. And literally, I was at dinners with people in Silicon Valley 
the great liberal meritocracy. We support women of Silicon Valley. And major billionaire VCs would say things to me like, there is no way you're going to get on a plane after you hold a baby in your arms. And I was like, you're literally telling me that a conference I've spent two years planning for TechCrunch. We were doing our first disrupt in China. I had booked the entire lineup. I had spent years planning this thing, something that's this major professional goal and source of pride I've spent years on. You're telling me the second I hold a baby that the ambition to do that will be wiped from my personality. This was literally what people were telling me to the point where I had a $100 bet with someone on whether or not I would do it. (laughs) I mean, it's like, this is how you're conditioned. Of course, you're not going to start a company. And of course, there's wouldn't fund you if you were because this is what they believe about you like it's crazy and so when this bomb was diffused and I got on the plane to China and it was fine it was like okay that was step one of the confidence if I can start a company because I didn't feel like there was this looming existential threat to who I was this whole thing I'd been sold of this great disability of womanhood and I was a woman like it or not was a lie so that was kind of step one Step two was I had this great crucible where I had to make a decision because my job got stolen while I was in labor. And I had the option to go back to TechCrunch and command any salary and pick whatever job I wanted and have this really easy, cushy life, or I could start a new company. And looking at this baby who I was so in love with, you know, who was looking to me for everything, and I was going to be his female role model of what was right and what was wrong in the world and what we do as a family and how we handle adversity. You know, I'm looking at this baby's eyes and I'm also thinking, I'm going to be away from this kid for like 50, 60 hours a week to like rebuild a property for AOL. Like that's awful. And I'm also looking at this kid and thinking, this is this first major inflection point of he looks at me for like what you do in this world. And, you know, he's not going to remember this one, but he's going to remember a ton in the future. And it's like, who am I as his mother? And I was not someone who was going to let someone steal my job and go back and work for them. And it just was so clear in a way that it never had been because I guess part of it wasn't about just me anymore. I mean, one of the women that I write about in my chapter about like powerhouse New York single moms, is this woman, Jennifer Justice, who's amazing. And, you know, she's a lawyer and she's one of the most confident people. It's so hard to imagine her having a crisis of confidence. But she says at one point, like a lot of women, me included, don't negotiate for ourselves. But, you know, I am a lawyer and I'm an amazing lawyer. And like when she became a mother, she had two new clients who were her children. And so sometimes it's like you don't have enough confidence to do something for yourself. But that maternal love means you do it for your children because you represent this bigger thing. And so I think like taking that risk away, but also having that awesome responsibility, like that's the biggest thing to give me confidence. And then as your children grow up, you just don't care. Like, you just don't care anymore. I mean, when you have, like, this child who you love more than anything in the world, who, like, in my case, my son also, like, has my face. And, and like, all of you, like, don't look at me with those eyes. I've been in those, those eyes. Like, you have this thing that's, like, so you and so amazing and you adore him and he's telling you how much he hates you because oh. you're punishing him. And you have to stand firm because you know you have to punish this child. If you do that on a daily basis, do you think any bro in Silicon Valley saying they're not going to invite you to their party if you write this thing anymore matters at all. Like you just develop such an internal core of right and wrong and important and not important. And if you can withstand your children, who cares about anyone else? Hmm. 
I don't know if you know the writer Courtney Martin. Have you ever heard of her? I haven't. She wrote this essay for On Being with Krista Tippett, and she says, when you come home from the hospital with that little pink and blue striped beanie, she's like, it's the biggest bullshit detector ever. Like you just, yeah. and I think what you're saying here that's so interesting too is it's not whether or not you're going to leave the job or come back or do things that you're passionate or not about. It's whether or not like you wake up and you're like, that was a waste of time. Yeah. I, I just have an elevated sense of, of ability to detect bullshit. Yeah. Hmm. Which is why like mothers are so productive. It's like talking about some bullshit drama at a company just never happens anymore. Like this is not worth my time. This is not worth a moment of my time. And it's like, you know, there's studies, which I cite in the book that show that mothers have more productivity than any other employee and retain it through the rest of their career because you're just changed. And women who have more kids get that much more productive. I mean, there's so much science and data to show why motherhood makes women so much stronger and so much better. It's insane that like, Mm -hmm. still our society doesn't believe it. Well, and there's two parts to that, right? Like this chapter, not all moms have the luxury to build a company, but all moms have the skills. When you talk about like, just what tremendous skills that women have. Like if you're a breastfeeding mother and you've been pumping, you've been trained in project management, for example. (laughs) Like you done, you don't need the PMI certification, you've got it. But the other part that I thought was really interesting, and correct me if I'm paraphrasing this, was that mothers do take a hit in productivity in those first, is it two years? But on the whole, go ahead. No, it's first couple years. Like they're very, they didn't really look at that as granularly as I would have liked. I mean, in my experience, it was until they got in preschool and my kids went in preschool two and a half. Mm. But yes, but it's only a 15% hit in productivity. So you can think about it like doing an MBA that will make you better in your career the whole rest of your career. Right. But then you have an increase in productivity for the next 30, 40, 50, whatever number of years you're working. And that benefit, that gain is so much greater than the fractional hit that you might take during the specific year when you have a baby. Right. I just thought that was so interesting because the myth out there about, oh, you're not as efficient or you're distracted or all of that, you you basically called VS on that as well, which was so wonderful to see. And again, this is one of the reasons that like allowing women to have maternity leave is so important because you never feel like it's more undoable than that moment when you first come home with a baby. And it's like, if you give women a certain amount of time to adjust to that new normal, then it's not a problem. But if you force women to stay in the workplace or leave at that moment, again, if you want to deny women economic opportunity, it's a brilliant, brilliant playbook because you are picking their very weakest moment because from then on, they will become super productive badasses. Hmm. Better and better and better. Okay, so then I have a couple more questions I want to ask you. And one of them is when we look at the world of work and the fact that a lot of it was built for the masculine, by the masculine, for a world in which men were working and women weren't. And then we layer on top of that in the startup world, the funding is controlled by some, I think it's 94% of men and women get less than 15% of funding for startups. My question is, how do we get out from under this huge tidal wave, this huge inertia of the direction that it's heading? And how do we start to shift those tides? 
So yeah, it's actually, the stats are actually worse than that. It's 15% oh, no. if, I know, it's even worse. It's 15% if a woman is a quote co-founder. And so what happens a lot of time is there's someone in marketing and someone says they're a co-founder in order to look like they have more diversity. Mm-hmm. So it's actually worse. So what you, I think it's important to look at is women who are CEOs. And if a woman is a CEO of a startup, they get less than 3% of the money. Jesus. Yeah. So in terms of how we change it, I mean, there's two ways. American business is driven by greed and fear. Greed hasn't worked. And morality just, you know, if you believe business is driven by morality, let's just dispense with that as well. Like morality hasn't worked. But greed for sure hasn't worked because we've spent four or five years giving people tons of stats on why diversity and gender inclusion would lead to better investments, lead to stronger companies, lead to higher GDP lead to more profits within companies. I mean, there's so much data on this. And so this industry that everyone says, everyone justifies, for instance, funding someone like Travis Kalanick by saying, well, all we care about are returns. Well, okay, when it comes to inclusion, they don't. Hmm. So greed hasn't worked. So all there is is now is fear. And I think that's a lot of what you're seeing in the world right now. I think that's a lot of what you're seeing in Silicon Valley where it is now going to be an issue of if you misuse your position of power in order to sexually harass women, then women are going to come forward and you're going to lose your fund. So it now unfortunately has to get down to fear and people calling you out and saying, why don't you back more women? Why don't you have more women in your fund? Shaming. That's what it has to come down to. And fear also can be the fear of missing out on another investment. Like Silicon Valley prides itself on this lousy pattern recognition. And one thing that's so exciting to me about Stitch Fix's upcoming IPO is that Lightspeed lost out on its ownership in Stitch Fix, a good percentage of its ownership, because its partner, Justin Callback, sexually harassed the founder and they had to settle it and cover it up. It is a direct case where treating a woman horribly has cost you money. And the problem with the data argument is that VCs are like, okay, sure, but they don't really believe it because they don't really see it. And so they can pretend that's not real data. But when they start seeing they are missing out on stuff, then it starts being this other edge of fear, a fear of you're missing these things. And one of the coolest stories that I've covered in the last couple of years is the rise of Kirsten Green, who is a venture investor who no venture firm would have ever hired, would have ever hired because she didn't have this sort of, you know, bullshit playbook for what you were supposed to be in order to become a venture investor. Never mind, most men don't have that either. But when it comes to women, they have to for some reason. So she would have never been hired by any venture fund. So she raised her own fund, like pretty painstakingly, and it was pretty brutal. And her first three deals were Bonobos and Warby Parker and Birchbox. And she was in Jet and she was in Dollar Shave Club. And she has just destroyed. And she is one of the best investors in the world right now. And she is a woman no man would have hired. Hmm. And so when you all start seeing pattern after pattern after pattern of not just this hypothetical that your companies would be better if you included women, but your awful behavior is actively costing you money, that in addition to shaming, in addition to if you've done something illegal, you will be held accountable. That is literally the only thing that changes it at this point. And I think what's so exciting about this summer is 
it has already changed to a large degree. I've been in Silicon Valley for close to 20 years. I don't think anyone would have ever thought a partner would be fired for propositioning an entrepreneur ever. It is changing right in front of our eyes. And there's the last question that I have, although I could probably talk to you for several more hours. You still Um, owe me your third time you cried, by the way. Oh, let me put a pin in that and first ask you a question. Recently, really recently, a couple of days ago, there was an article called The End of the Cult of the Founder. And I feel like over the last 20 years, we've been seeing the popularity of startups and the mythology of this young, single, white male tech founder, and particularly, you know, popularized by the writing of Paul Graham and others. And what's coming to light now is that we're not seeing this as truth. In fact, there's different things like entrepreneurs are still actually averaging around age 40. And so in this article that Wired put out, it said the end of the cult of the founder, this mythology of this, you know, Harvard dropout as being the the pattern that we're chasing. Given that we are a storytelling species, if you will, and we kind of cling to these narratives about the myth of this lone hero, is there a different narrative that you see that's going to take its place? Like, how do we move from this story? And what do you see as the future stories? Well, I think what's hard, it's going to be a really, really long process because what's difficult is that whole idea of the the cult of this young dropout founder was popularized. The same stats were there about, you know, most founders are 40. Like that none of that is is new at all. And the reason that no one cared then, and the reason that a lot of people still don't care now, is because Silicon Valley is a weird place. Like, you know, I said earlier, like the stat that to me makes sense of motherhood bias is this stat that 40% of households think it's bad if mothers work. Like, I think the stat that makes every weirdness of Silicon Valley make sense that I've been saying for even longer is 95% of the returns come from 5% of the companies. So no one gives a about what the average founder is or does or says. The only pattern anyone obsesses about is those 5% of companies. And In that, you've got Mark Zuckerberg, you have Bill Gates, you have Larry and Sergey, you have the Yahoo founders. This is where it comes from. And so like all the data in the world showing everything else will do nothing to actually disrupt that. Now, the problem is this has become a self-fulfilling prophecy. I mean, as Ellen Powell says in her book, VCs will say these type of people have made them almost all of their money. Well, they've also lost all of their money. I mean, there are a million of these guys that you know we could detail that everyone's forgotten about now who I've seen funded for these exact same reasons, that they're white and they're college dropouts and they say things that kind of sound like what these guys said at that age. It's like literally why they've gotten funded. And they've also lost tons and tons and tons of money. And so as long as that still tends to be what's getting the most funding, it is going to continue to be a self-fulfilling prophecy that those people are making the most money. And so I think what you have to have is more diversity in terms of who's getting funded to begin with. And what you have to have for that is more diversity in terms of who's writing the checks. So one thing I think that's been really exciting about the last couple of years in which there are even fewer general partners at major venture firms 
is that women have been leaving and starting their own firms. So, you know, I talked about Kirsten Green. You also have someone like Aileen Lee, who left Kleiner Perkins, Trey Vasallo, who also left Kleiner Perkins and has started her own funds. Increasingly, you're having women just refuse to play this game anymore and leave and start their own funds. And you also have a lot of women who haven't been CEOs, but have had meaningful roles at a lot of these companies who've made a ton of money and will have money to, you know, angel invest. You know, Susan Line has a fund that is only to fund girls because women were having such a hard time finding funding in New York where her fund is based. So I think the more you change the makeup of who's writing the checks, the more you can change the pattern of who's getting funded. And then you can change the pattern of who's in this 5% who's driving 95% of these returns. But until that happens, misogynists like Paul Graham are going to be just as enraptured with these guys as they've ever been. And there's nothing wired or I can say to change their minds. Hmm. Sarah, it's really wonderful to interview you. And I have your book in front of me. I should send you a picture of it because it's got so many sticky flags in it. (laughs) (laughs) Um, And they're all color coded, which is its own separate OCD-ness. But I actually am really glad I did because I hadn't, I didn't remember the third one. I was like, I don't remember, but I know that I did. I just flipped through the book and I found a little teardrop mark. (laughs) (laughs) It's on page 270. And it's when when Evie Evie. says, Evie, oh, thank you. I know. Um, My biggest fear is that the audiobook is going to say Evie. No, you'll correct that. I've corrected it 15 times already before it's even come out because I like will wake up at 3 a.m. Like literally one of Evie's first sentences was she was playing with her stuffies in a corner and I heard one of her stuffies correcting the other stuffy (laughs) and going, and not Evie, and Evie. (laughs) Oh, that's funny. Evie, when you guys are at the Women's March, and I've got this highlight here, it says, I don't see any women, Mama. I only see people. I know. She's ridiculous. She is like the most fearless thing I've ever encountered in my life. Like, it's like, I feel like if I could bottle and distill like essence of Evie and just like drop that on women who are having any crisis of confidence, the power in our country would change hands overnight. I mean, I have just never seen such an amazing concentrated force of female power in one being. I mean, I say at one point in the book, like I like sneaking in and watching her sleep because it's like watching a T-Rex sleep. (laughs) That's funny. That's really funny. Sarah, thank you so much for taking the time and tell everybody where they could find your book and the full title and where they can find you on the internet to tell you you're awesome. (laughs) Okay. So, and also you can find me and tell me that I'm awful because I get that constantly every day too. The full title is A Uterus is a Feature, Not a Bug, The Working Woman's Guide to Overthrowing the Patriarchy. And you can go, you know, anywhere books are sold. I mean, there's a link at harperbusiness.com slash uterus that will give you all the links you need. And we're actually doing a really cool special right now where if you order multiple copies and email me the receipt at mom at chairmanmom.com. Chairman Mom's my new company, which I'll have to come back and talk about sometime. Mm -hmm. If you email me at mom at chairmanmom.com, copy of, you know, you buying multiple books with multiple receipts. I have a run of 500 limited edition book plates that just say, dear so-and-so, and you can fill in the blank. 
this person buying this book for you thinks you're a total badass and so do I. And it will be a constant reminder of if you buy this book for a badass woman in your life on her worst days, you believe in her and think she's totally able to slay the patriarchy and an amazing force. And I think we just put that out this week. We were going to do a run of 100 and within 13 minutes, 130 were gone. Hmm. So we're now doing a run of 500 and I think we have about 300 left. So if anyone has the holidays approaching and would like to buy your girlfriends and female coworkers something other than like candles this year, do that, email me and I will send you your book plates to let that person know every day of their life how much you believe in them. Amazing. And then Sarah writes all the time on Pando Daily. She's on Twitter a lot. Too much. <laughs> Too much. We were talking before the show about taking breaks from Twitter. And I'm just going to say again, send nice things because yeah, there there's are, enough other stuff. There's enough other There's trolls. Just send the good stuff. All right. You know, I feel like it depends on which side of me you're interested in. If you want to see me fighting with people, then follow me on Twitter. And my <laughs> handle is at Sarah Kuda. If you just want to see adorable pictures of my kids, then follow me on Instagram. It's like literally two halves of me divided. <laughs> Perfect. Thanks. Thank you. Thank you so much for listening to this episode of the Startup Pregnant Podcast. If you have a question or a comment about the show, head to startuppregnant.com for all of the show notes, episode quotes, and more. We have weekly blog posts and a lot of bonus resources all over at startuppregnant.com. If you want to support the show, the best thing you can do right now is hit subscribe and then leave us a review. And if you'd like to become a sponsor, go to startuppregnant.com slash sponsors to find out more. Thank you so much. And I'll see you on the next episode.